right, open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. We'll start there and we'll move to the Old Testament and then settle on the book of Psalms, Psalm 72, which is actually in your daily Bible reading. So if you want to know why I chose that, I chose it because it's a Palm Sunday psalm and it's in the daily Bible reading. But start with Zechariah chapter 9, Old Testament, next to the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah and Malachi. So if you can find Matthew and flip back one book, you'll see Malachi there, and then the book before it is going to be the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, two verses, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Are we all there? Rejoice. Rejoice, the Lord is King, Charles Wesley wrote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. Now, verse 10, just to keep in mind, look at the three references. You have a reference to the chariot. You have a reference to the horse. You have a reference to the battle bow. All of this is about war, isn't it? It's all about war. And I will cut it all off. From Ephraim, representing the north section of Israel. Jerusalem, representing the southern section of Israel. The battle bow, I like the way these three are put together. Look at verse 10 at the end of it. Everybody together, if you have a new King James, it'll be word for word the same as I'm reading. He shall speak peace to the nations. Everybody, let's do it again. He shall speak peace to the nations. His kingdom shall be from sea to sea and from the river, that would be the Euphrates River. The sea river is capitalized, so we have to identify it with one of the rivers. From everything we know in Scripture, that's from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. All right? Now, he will speak peace to the nations. Now, you recognize this passage of Scripture, don't you? You recognize it because it was quoted on Palm Sunday. So if you take your Bible to Matthew, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, recreate in your mind that day when Jesus was ushered into the city of Jerusalem by crowds and crowds of people who came from uh, the countryside and in a procession led Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And then there were crowds and crowds of people there who were there for the Passover celebration and the Bible says that they took palm branches in their clothes and they ushered him in, hoping that he would establish himself as the king of Israel. And so I just want to read verse five, 4 and 5 of chapter 21. You have the picture of Palm Sunday. And it says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there's one other passage of scripture that I want you to look at. 
A few days later, Jesus is referred to as the King of Israel, Matthew chapter 27. I want you to go to chapter 27, verse 37, then we'll settle on Psalm 72. And I want you to know that this is crucifixion day. Jesus has already been tried. He's been taken to the cross. He has been nailed to the cross, and the Bible tells us that they put a sign above the cross over his head. You remember that? And that sign reads these words in chapter 27, verse 37. And they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And that was supposed to be the end of it. Well, next week we're going to find out that wasn't the end of it, but we already know that's not the end of it. We already wonder why Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem in a lowly manner, in a peaceful way. People probably couldn't figure that out after the fact. But they were so excited to see Jesus. They were so excited recognizing him as the one who was to come and deliver them from all of their oppression, all of their enemies, and if they were reading their Bibles well, all of their sin. So let's go to Psalm 72 as we close it out this morning. Psalm 72. Remember, I ask you to be aware of four questions. Whenever you read the Bible, you should always ask yourself four questions. You should ask yourself, is there a problem for me to endure or a blessing for me to embrace? Number two, is there a sin for me to avoid or an attitude to change? Number three, is there a truth for me to believe or a promise to claim, right? And number four, is there an example for me to follow or a command for me to obey? Those four questions. And you should do that with every single passage of Scripture. And I asked myself many, many times when I was reading through Psalm 72, if there is or any of these questions that really stand out in my mind. And there are. But let me suggest this to you first. Let's get a little better overview of this passage of Scripture. Now, we read verses 1 through 11 in the, in the Scripture this morning, but I want to skim over a couple of these passages of Scripture. So follow with me. Give the king your judgments, O God. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. We know that prayer comes from David's heart in verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Because this is a psalm of Solomon, or a psalm about Solomon, or a psalm for Solomon, we know he's involved in it as well. And this could be very close to his coronation day when Solomon will take over the kingdom from David. And so David is praying. Solomon, no doubt, is part of all of this. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. If we go down through this passage of Scripture, we will discover that God has given to us the perfect qualifications of someone who can rule rightly. And it's not going to end up being David. It's not going to end up being Solomon. The only one who's going to be able to fulfill everything in this passage of Scripture is King Jesus himself. King Jesus himself. Now, before we get a little better idea of this passage of Scripture and make our application, 
I want to say one other thing to you because always in the back of my head is how can we get to the place where it's easy for us to understand Scripture? Because there are so many difficult statements in practically every poetry uh, section of God's Word that you're going to find. All the Psalms are poetry. So I want you to make a note of this little technique. When under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David gives us this psalm for Solomon. He makes his strongest points. I want you to see that when you read it. He makes his strongest points by referring to the natural world. All right, now this is very important. That's why I'm being real slow and deliberate about this for a moment. He makes his strongest points, or most of his strongest points, through a description of the natural world that he likens whatever he is saying to. Here's an example. Look at verse 3. Right after he says in verse 2, he will judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. What does he say? The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Now, what you and I should do with that before we try to figure out what it means, because sometimes we can say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'll spiritualize the passage of Scripture. Well, that's okay. You can make some spiritual application. But think of the mountains for just a moment and think of the possibility of mountains bringing peace. Now, mountains have always been treacherous to people in this world from the earliest of time. They're always the most difficult territory to conquer. There's always dangers in the mountains. There's volcanoes. There's earthquakes. There's avalanches, there's exposure in other ways. And so when he says to us, the mountains will bring peace to the people, he's talking about something you and I already understand. You see what I'm saying? How totally different the world is when the mountains bring peace instead of Trials, torments, torture. You see what I'm saying? Now, I'll give you another illustration here in verse 5. The Bible talks about the duration of the kingdom. David is praying, and he's praying, and it seems as if he's praying that <clears throat> King Solomon and King Solomon's line will endure forever. That's what it seems like, because what does he use by way of an illustration? They shall fear you as long as what? The sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Forever is what he's really saying there. As long as the sun and the moon endure, they shall fear you through all generations. And in verse 7, he talks about the moon and then he goes back to the sun and the moon in verse 17. Now, at least the sun. When he shares that with us, he is sharing an important spiritual truth 
but he's giving it to us in language that we already understand. The implication is, unless you have been talked out of this, and we live in a day and a world where you and I have to be aware of the possibility that you and I can be talked out of anything that we believe. We've got to be careful about it. But I will, I will wager, and you know, obviously I'm not a wagering man, but I would suggest to you that you've never once gotten up in your lifetime, no matter how old you are, walked outside and looked up into the heavens and said, Oh, I wonder if that sun's coming down today. I wonder if this is going to be the day that it is gone, that it vanishes, that it stops shining. Don't admit it if you have thought that. You probably never walked out in the nighttime and said, Oh, well, this is it. This is the last time I'll get to see the moon. I'm sure it's going to be gone. But the point is, he's using that. He's using the fact that you and I understand that the sun and the moon are going to be shining forever. As long as this earth remains. And you and I then will recognize, you and I then will understand the spiritual application. Let me give you one more, all right? In verse 6, he shall come down like rain upon the grass. He shall come down, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And David praying that this would be true of Solomon in his reign. He shall come down like rain upon the grass. What does rain do? Rain refreshes the earth. He reinforces it when he says that like showers that water the earth. And the reign of Christ is going to be refreshing. It's going to be reinvigorating. It's going to be fantastic. And so when I ask those four questions and I say, is there a, is there a truth for me to believe? Well, the truth for me to believe is that God has a wonderful plan for this earth. And one of these days, life on this earth is going to be totally different than what it is now. He's describing pretty much what Eden was like. And so I'm excited about that. And I think we need to do exactly what the psalmist says. I don't mind taking you to the conclusion at the end in verses 18, 19, and 20. We're to rejoice that the Lord is king. We're to bless the Lord. We're to, we're to recognize he does wondrous things. We're to bless his glorious name forever. And we're to make sure that the whole earth, look at verse 19. And we're to make sure that we understand and look forward to the day when the whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, sometimes when you don't understand a passage of scripture like that, the best thing for you to do is to contrast it. If I were to suggest that the earth, the earth was not filled with his glory, what would the opposite of glory be? The whole earth is filled with shame, right? whole earth is, is uh, filled with, I could take a lot of words and put it in there that would contrast the word glory. When, we, when the Bible says that the day is coming when the whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord, then it means that the whole earth is going to be a sanctuary for the presence of God. And he isn't going to put up with a lot of the stuff that we have to put up with today. You're not going to have to worry about the social sins that we talk about so often. Because the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
not the glorious sinful man. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And so rejoice, the Lord is king. Now, I want you to look at this passage of Scripture. We'll read a little bit more of it, and then we'll make a couple of applications, and that will be it. We won't need to go any further on this. But let's go back to verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. Now, there's another natural phenomena, natural world, sea to sea, something we already understand. We know in America when we sing the song, From Sea to Shining Sea, we know that, he, that, that the United States covers everything from ocean to ocean, right? He doesn't identify the seas. He's just saying God is going to be, the king is going to be over everything. From sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish, where is Tarshish in the Bible? Tarshish is west. Go west, young man, go west. You know, if they were using that terminology, they would say, get in a ship like Jonah and go west. Sail across the Mediterranean Sea. Go as far as you can. Go to the isles, the islands. Those would be the Greek islands and beyond. The western kings. What does it mean? See, we understand that and we say, wow, the territory of the kingdom is really, really, really big. Because he is going to rule over all of the western kings. That's the implication. And then he goes to the east, eastern kings. Look at, verse, look at verse 10. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. These are the eastern kings. Yes, and if we don't get it from those natural geographical areas, what does he say at the end of the verse? Verse 11. Yes, everybody together. All kings shall fall down before him. And if we don't understand that, he reinforces it with what does he say next? All nations shall serve him. So, the duration of his kingdom, and we implied, we, we saw that briefly, is it's forever and ever and ever. When you look out and see the sun and the moon, Guess what? It's going to last as long as the sun and the moon. When you look at the extent of God's kingdom, it's going to be from sea to shining sea. It's going to include everything in the west, everything in the east. West and east. For you, from the pulpit. It's a compassionate kingdom. I mean, you and I, look at these verses of Scripture. Look at verse 2. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Verse 4, he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. 
He will break in pieces the oppressor. Your mind's got to be moving a thousand miles an hour when you read this stuff. And you say to your staff, we are dealing with stuff that the world has never, ever been able to conquer, to solve, to deal with. Verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also in him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall their blood be in his sight. I mean, look at that. Look at, look, look at precious shall be their blood in his sight. If the, if, if, if the blood of all people are precious in the sight of the Lord... then the powerful are not going to be allowed to shed it in his kingdom. Now, I, I, I would say that's a really good application. But look at how appreciative the world is going to be. He shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him constantly and daily he shall be praised. Because he is a compassionate, gracious, kind and generous king. And look at this kingdom. We'll have prosperity. Look at the prosperity. Not only will we have peace, but there'll be prosperity. Verse 16. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. Once again, he's using something that everybody over there would understand. When they look up and see the mountains of Lebanon up uh, along the coast of uh, above Galilee, when they see those mountains and they see the beautiful forest, the cedars of Lebanon, and how they sway in the breeze, they understand exactly what he's saying when he says the grain in the earth will be abundant and the fruit will wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Again, he's using another common thing that we understand. We understand all about grass and how it grows. We're all trying to get our lawnmowers out. We're trying to get everything worked up. We're trying to get everything ready so we can cut the grass because you know it's going to go overnight, right? And he says, listen, those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. I'm telling you, this is, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. Well, let me, let me follow this now. We're going to close this up, but I want you to follow the logic here. So if this is a prayer of David, and he's praying about Solomon have, being a good king and judging rightly and ruling rightly so that there's peace and prosperity, so that there's righteousness, all right. It seems like David expects this to happen in Solomon's lifetime. It didn't happen in David's lifetime. David wasn't even allowed to build the temple because there was too much war going on. Solomon started out well and he brought Israel to its golden age, but Solomon wasn't able to bring about the prosperity and the peace and the righteousness that we're talking about here in this passage of Scripture. He wasn't able to do it. And so it brings us to a third and final point, and that is that only the Prince of Peace, only Jesus is going to be able to bring all of this to pass. If I were to give you an application that I would just routinely use 
when you get discouraged and you get up in the morning and you say, life is not working out for me and, and things aren't going my way and when I look at the world around me and I look the way the nation is going and I look at all this stuff, I'll tell you what, I get depressed, I get discouraged, I get upset, I wonder what I can do. You just take Psalm 72, open it up, and you look at God's plan for the righteous ruler and the Redeemer, the Messiah, His glory, the universality of His reign, the extent of His reign, the peace and the prosperity and the righteousness. You've got to have all those things. And then you've got to remind yourself that there's no nation or group of nations that will ever bring about the kingdom that's described right here. It is impossible. No nation can do it. No group of nations can do it. I remember being in New York one time, and, and uh, I, I, I remember I wanted to see, I just wanted to see the, the uh, uh, United Nations building. So we took a train from Philadelphia where I was going to graduate school and seminary there, and we went to New York City. It, it ended up under Madison Square Garden. We come up on Fifth Avenue, and it's just a short walk over to the United Nations building. And we walked into the United Nations building and walked into a United Nations Security Council meeting. And the only way you could understand what was going on in the United Nations Security Council meeting was to take a pair of headphones, determine what your language was, make sure that you indicated that you wanted to hear this all in English, and put it on. And I'll tell you what, I listened, and I listened, and I thought, and this group is supposed to solve the problems of the world? I'm, seri I'm serious. I, I couldn't believe it. And this group is supposed to solve the problems of the world? Seriously? I never have felt the same about the United Nations since. I'm not saying they don't have good intentions. But listen, no nation or group of nations, look what happened in the United States of America. We started so well, and we've been a Christian nation for so long and, and have established good, solid base uh, of a Christian heritage that you and I can be proud of. But listen, we're, we're, we're dropping the ball, aren't we? We are dropping the ball, and God's plan anyway is to bring about His kingdom through the Prince of Peace. So no nation or group of nations will ever bring about the kingdom described here in Psalm 22, in Psalm 72. We're not going to be able to achieve the prosperity. We're not going to be able to get rid of the poverty. We're not going to be able to deal with uh, how long we can make it last. And we certainly don't know a thing about how to keep it righteous. Damn, we're going backwards. We're legislating immorality. We think that peace is a product of compromise with falsehood and wrong. Yep, this passage of Scripture says that the mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills will bring peace by righteousness. And in that is prosperity. But it doesn't happen without righteousness. It doesn't happen without righteousness. So until all are united under the Prince of Peace, you're going to have wars. You're going to have bickering and fighting among leaders. You're going to have social evils and social problems until all of us are united under the Prince of Peace who promises to return and straighten this whole mess up. Amen? It's true.
It's true. So I got to say this to you in closing. On Palm Sunday, Jesus, crowds and crowds of people because the city is just packed with people who are there for the Passover celebration. That city is just crowded, 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 crowded. And so thousands of people probably get around this, this whole notion of ushering Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, hoping, that, hoping maybe that he would take over and become the king. But they're getting a little ahead of themselves, are they not? They first have to accept Christ as the suffering Messiah. That has to happen first. They have to go through that week and they have to stand at the cross. And they have to understand that the king, before he is going to reign in glory, must die for the sin of the world. And you and I can't experience the second part of that kingdom until we experience the first. It won't happen. It won't happen. And so that's why Good Friday is so important. That's why Resurrection Sunday is so important. This whole Passion Week is so important because it focuses on the fact that Jesus paid it all. He went to the cross and paid the penalty for sin that you and I deserve so that we could be free from its penalty. One day be a citizen in the kingdom. Amen. Father in heaven, you are so good to us and so gracious to us. So gracious in the sense that you've not left us to ourselves and said, you figure out how to save yourselves. You've even not left it to ourselves to figure out how to save the world. You're going to do it. So gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your willingness to save us through that lowly, lowly, the picture of the lowly procession leading Christ into the city of Jerusalem. Oh, thank you, Lord, for not bypassing the next few days that occurred after that. Lord, thank you for not bypassing the cross. Thank you for not bypassing your death and your resurrection. Thank you for what it means to us. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.